0: This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, and it's on page 986 in the Pew Bibles. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Mary. Well, it's great to be with you again this morning as we come to the fourth in our series of Living in Love and Faith. Uh, As um, Eddie has already told you, this is a series in which we explore uh, sexual relationships, um, and there are no holds barred, there's nothing that's off limits as we address issues of sex and single people uh, living together, um, single-sex relationships, and, uh, uh, and even, even trans, the, the, the trans issues that crop up. Well, biblical teaching is often quite, as Eddie has already said, it's quite challenging. It's quite, it can make us feel um, uneasy. And I have to remind myself that whenever the gospel makes me feel uncomfortable, that when Jesus walked on earth he not only comforted the afflicted, but he also afflicted the comfortable. And so, this morning, uh, we're talking about the biblical approach to marriage, with special reference uh, to adultery and to uh, sex outside marriage. And all of these, by the way, feature in today's reading from Matthew 19. Here, we find Jesus being interrogated by a group of Pharisees on the question of divorce. Now, the law of Moses permitted, just admitted that there was divorce. They took it for granted. And they gave, Deuteronomy 24 gives clear instructions on how a divorce should be conducted. Namely, that before a man sends his wife away, he should give her a certificate of divorce. Um, well, the trouble is that the, gospel, that the, the, the test, Old Testament told people how to divorce, but not why to divorce. It said next to nothing about the grounds uh, that, uh, that are there for divorce. So it was left to, to the rabbis uh, to decide whether in each individual case, on a one-by-one case, whether a divorce was justified. And by the time Jesus turned up, there was a great debate that had been raging for decades between the different rabbinical schools as to what constituted a proper basis for people getting divorced. And there were mainly two schools of thought. Uh, the one uh, was spearheaded by the great Rabbi Hillel, uh, and the other by a similarly equally distinguished rabbi called Shammai. Now, Hillel permitted divorce for any purpose whatsoever, so a husband could send his wife away, for instance, if she cooked him a rotten meal. Um, whereas Shammai said, "No, come on! This is, divorce is only permissible where a partner has committed adultery." And here is Jesus being asked to take sides, and he says, <coughs> and "Again." As so often in the gospel, uh, he's asked the question, he said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And once again, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He doesn't tell them what they want to know. He tells them what they need to know. And so he takes them right back to the creation and God's original plan for mankind. And he answers, Don't you, haven't you read? He replied, That in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become as one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, now, as we read the scriptures, um, something becomes very clear. Creation is the creation of the world, is binary. We can't get away from the male-female narrative in the Scriptures. And uh, that applies both in the natural and in the supernatural. Because in the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh is called the, the husband of his people Israel. And in the New Testament, uh, the, the church of Jesus is called the bride of Christ, Furthermore, if you look at the number of pages in the Bible devoted to sexual activity, it becomes abundantly clear that God put us into male and female bodies and that it actually matters to him what we do with those bodies. Why is that? Because he not only created us, but he wants his Holy Spirit to indwell in us, to live in us. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, He says, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. I would just like us to camp for a few moments on those last five words. You are not your own. You see, I've been thinking a lot about identity recently. And not long ago, I, I came to the conclusion that who you are is largely determined by whose you are, even if you leave God out of the equation. Um, a few, <laughs> we were, Victoria and I were visiting our grandchildren and noticed that our nearly 13-year-old is looking just like his dad. He, he walks like his dad. He talks like his dad. Um, he, you know, and we thought to ourselves, well, isn't it amazing how you know, my, I'm sure that my son-in-law, his dad, never sat the boy down and said, now look, when you, when you talk, I want you to speak like this. And when you walk, I want you to put this leg forward like that. He, I'm sure that never happened. The boy just picked it up by living with someone who loves him and who cares for him. And the Bible very clearly tells us that when we hang out with God, we begin to look like him. Of course, there's a a problem there. That how do you and I, as mere mortals, begin to look like the Creator of the universe whom we can't see? And so the, we look in scripture and we see. Well, actually, there's a, a passage that tells us just about just like tells us exactly that. It's, it, it, it tells us that we, when we begin to 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 seek God, we can look like Him, and. Um, I'll read you that passage. I must tell you actually that the other day, Eddie our baker, uh, told me how he had met um, the great John Stott, the late great John Stott, and how this man simply radiated with the love of God and the compassion of God. A lifetime of walking with Jesus had made him a godly man. That compassion of God's, which reaches out to all of us to every one of us, regardless of our faith and regardless of our lifestyle. Well, the scripture I'm talking about is, uh, is in Ephesians 5, and, um, it, it, and I'll tell you exactly where it is. Well, you'll find it. It's on the screen. Um, Follow God's example, it says, therefore, as, as dearly beloved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ uh, loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The New King James Version um, translates this uh, this first uh, verse as "Be imitators of God," and that's actually closer to the original, because the original New Testament Greek word used here is mimuma, mimuna, mimua, which, from which we get the word mimic, and. Um, That means to take on uh, the pattern, uh, the appearance, and the mannerisms of another person, of another. Uh, Just like our uh, nearly 13-year-old grandson has taken on the patterns of his dad. Now, what this Ephesians passage tells us is that if we want to imitate God, we need to imitate Jesus. Now, of course, that only works if you accept that Jesus is God. Ephesians 5 goes on to say that if you're really serious about imitating Jesus, then there'll be certain things in your life that you have to change, and there'll be certain things that you need to know. And um, so the passage goes on here. It says, but among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, uh, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, that no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So, If you want to be an imitator of Jesus, it's likely to affect your sex life, and it's certainly going to affect your speech life. Uh, We haven't actually got time to get into the evils of blasphemy and uh, profane language, but I would like us just to spend a few moments thinking about how Christians should think about sex. I won't burden you with my personal testimony this morning, but I accept to tell you that I grew up in a setting where by the time my peer group uh, reached puberty, we were convinced that the only thing that the Christian church had to say about sex was no, no, and don't, don't. And by the time we became teenagers, we were so convinced that the church was anti-sex that we actually stayed well away from church for the rest of our lives, and, or until we found God. Anyhow, at um, a certain point in my life, God put his finger on me. And one day I heard myself making a personal commitment to Christ. And to my delight and astonishment, I discovered that Christianity was thoroughly pro sex. In fact, I can tell you with great rejoicing that this church of St. John's Blackheath is positively 100% pro sex. Because why? Because God designed us and designed our sexuality. He engineered it uh, so that it would give us pleasure, so it would protect us, and and uh, ensure the future generations. And so now, of course, we know that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. We should enjoy it and rejoice in it and engage in it. Um, But there's there's nothing nothing either dirty or bad about our sexuality as long as it's practiced within the framework that God created for it. And that framework is within uh, between a man and a woman who have committed themselves uh, to, to one another for life in that bond that we call marriage. Now, the church proclaims that wherever there is such a marriage, uh, permanent, monogamous, uh, 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 where there's such a relationship, then let the party begin. Let's go. You know. Alas, um, we, vi- we see very little of joyful, unbridled, married passion uh, re- between couples representing the media, don't we? I mean, most TV programs, uh, sitcoms, and most films portray married couples as um, unhappy, as dysfunctional, uh, someone's always got a headache or is, uh, uh, you know, tired. And again, by contrast, the media portrays uh, a different picture where um, it's the, it's the narrative there is that the people who are really enjoying themselves, so really having fun and really enjoying life, are the 20 or 30-somethings who are out there clubbing, and, uh, having lots of no strings attached recreational sex. Now, the real world is actually very different to that. Um, over the last few years, uh, a number of surveys, uh, general satisfaction surveys have been conducted. And, uh, among singles and married people, divorced and widowed. And, uh, for example, the, Uh, In in 2019, the Office of National Statistics uh, polled a staggering 286,059 people. That's well over a quarter of a million of us. And concluded and showed, found that that taken as a whole, uh, those who had been married for a long time were happier than any other group. Now, I must be clear that God's design for sex... Uh, within the boundaries of a k- lifelong committed relationships, was were not designed that those rules were not designed to repress us or to make us miserable, but rather to pr- ensure that our life is good, that we are looking out for ourselves and looking out for others. Um, it's a kind of highway code that God has produced. We, the, the Bible is often called God's um, uh, the the Maker's manual. Um, I think of it sometimes a highway code that prevents us from crashing, prevents us from hurting ourselves and hurting others. Sadly, when it comes to our sexuality, um, most of us ignore uh, the maker's instructions, uh, with the result that you and I live among the wreckage, the trail of wreckage left behind by um, lots of casual and temporary uh, sexual liaisons. Of course, Christian teaching goes completely, utterly against the current trends. Um, The Church of England recently published a report uh, uh, by the British Social Attitude Survey, it's called, that tells us that among those who self-identify as non-religious, 93% believe that there's absolutely nothing wrong with sex outside marriage. And even among uh, Catholics, those who self-identify as Anglicans and Roman Catholics, 82% I think the same. Now, does that mean that um, biblical teaching on sexuality is out of date, out of touch, and it's time that we either scrapped it or rewrote the Bible? Well, I can tell you that even 2,000 years ago, when Paul addressed his message to the Ephesians. It was just as out of touch, just as countercultural in Ephesus as it is to us in, in the UK. Ephesus in Paul's time was a multicultural society, uh, largely pagan. It was also the home of the Temple of Diana, the goddess of fertility, um, which was served by a, a team of um, priestesses who indulged in sex uh, with the worshippers who came there. So, not a place that you would expect uh, to get a message like this. Imagine how anti-cultural it would have been, how countercultural for Paul to write to these people and say, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, what Paul is saying to the Christians, the believers in the first century, in first century Ephesus, and what he still says to believers in 21st century London, is simply that what is normal for everyone else is not normal for you. You are mine, you belong to me, and because you are mine, you operate by a different set of values, different standards altogether. But you know, God's standards cannot be imposed from the outside. Uh, we, we, those who've encountered Jesus um, as their personal Lord and Savior can't help being like him any more than our nearly 13 uh, grandson can, can help being like his dad. True change comes within and works from the within to the outside. And no matter how much we try in our own strength, we cannot truly obey God uh, by our own devices. The Bible talks of the followers of Jesus being living sacrifices. I've often thought about that. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, To me, it means that you you admit to God that you've lost the way, that you need a Savior. You lay your life down at the foot of the cross, and you allow Jesus to come into your life and to change your life. Once you uh, experience Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, no one has to tell you to stop watching pornography. No one has to tell you to stop using the name of Jesus in vain, blaspheming and all that effing and blinding just stops because you're becoming more like Jesus. You're becoming more like him. You no longer have to behave. You no, no longer want to behave that way. It's unconscious even. You know. Uh, during the first lockdown, I used to tune in to uh, 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 online services from Holy Trinity Brompton. And in one of these services, which is still... Probably available on YouTube, Um, Nicky Gumbel, a much acclaimed vicar of HTB, a founder of the the Alpha programs, talks about how he and Pippa, who was then his girlfriend, slept together when they were at university. Well, one day, uh, one evening, they went to a Christian gathering, and both of them had a profound conversion experience. As Nicky puts it, he said, we both fell in love with Jesus. Well, soon afterwards, they both individually, separately, came to the conclusion that what they were doing was not in accordance with being temples of the Holy Spirit and being disciples of Jesus. And they independently just said, look, we won't have sex until after we're married. And today, for more than 40 years on, Nicky Gumbel looks in, into our eyes and says, you know, he said, that decision brought me and Pippa much closer to God, but it also brought us much closer to each other. No one had judged them, no one had told them to stop sleeping together. Uh, they just came to that conclusion because they love the Lord and they discovered Him for themselves, not any other way. When we encounter Jesus, He fills our lives and does things with us that we would have thought completely impossible before. In our our passage from Ephesians, Paul calls the followers of Jesus his holy people, God's holy people. The word holy means set apart. It means that God has reserved you for his kingdom service. Now, as you sit here this morning, you may not be feeling very holy. But then, we have a God who sees us not only as we are now, but as he always intended us to be. Unrestricted sexual freedom may be okay in the world out there, but it's not okay for us. Our values are no longer the values of the world around us and, and, and those who don't know Jesus. So you and I have been set apart to, as that song said, to shed the light of Christ into the world, wherever there's darkness. Um, but the darkness of the world cannot be overcome just by our own human efforts. I want to close by reading a, a famous verse by John, the Apostle John, from his first letter, uh, the first letter of John. He, he was, by this time, he was an old man. He was exiled on the island of Patmos, he was probably the last person alive who had known Jesus in the flesh. And as he thought about his life and about Christianity and about what God had done, uh, John reflects and he says, you know, whether we know it or not, those who seek to imitate Jesus have already overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he writes, dear children, he said, you dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, it's very easy to to miss some of the the, the richness of that text, so I'm going to read it to you a second time in the Amplified Version, which seeks to catch all those nuances uh, of the original. And it now reads, Little children, believers, dear ones, you are of God and you belong to him and have already overcome them, the agents of the Antichrist. Because he who is in you is greater than he, Satan, who is in the world of sinful mankind. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us, Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us. We ask it in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who
0: lives and reigns forever. Amen.